On July 16, 1945, one man describing what he had seen said, The burst was like the opening of heavy curtains of a darkened room to a flood of sunlight. The flash of the bomb was so bright and powerful that its projected light reached the moon and bounced off its surface. What man was able to achieve through this newfound energy was brilliant and frightening and life-altering and still impactful in our own lives. Scientists' reactions to the explosion that they had witnessed are uniquely descriptive. But from a scientific perspective, surprisingly, they're also artful and emotional. In his book written 25 years ago by Richard Rhodes, The Making of the Atomic Bomb, is a lengthy history of something that begins with proper nouns and lengthy, complicated numbers and ends with adjective-filled descriptions. And I think what Rhodes was getting at in the arc of the book, in part, is that something of this magnitude should be seen and should be measured and should be observed. But more importantly, it should be known. It should be spoken about for generations and generations, and it should be felt by everyone who would come in remote contact with it. Within milliseconds, this blast had extended itself half a mile in diameter, and what looked like a growing hourglass of fire extended towards the heavens by thousands of feet. People's descriptions go beyond what is measured. One said, I was enveloped by a warm light from darkness to brilliant sunshine in an instant. And as I remember, I momentarily just stood and was stunned. It was like opening a hot oven with the sun coming out like a sunrise. Taking place hours away in southern New Mexico at 5.29 a.m. nearly 75 years ago was the full-scale test of what later was known by the world as the atomic bomb. The Trinity test, after years of development, not only astounded people scientifically and instrumentally, but had such a tremendous effect on the earth that it hasn't been duplicated since its two performances over Japan, all but ending World War II. It was a staggering display of true power and true might. And so this morning, we come to our text and our witnesses of power and might, which is unparalleled and unachieved by man and should be understood and reacted to by everyone. But unlike the Trinity test, what we are witnessing in the Egyptian plagues is that they were not from man, but from God's conquest in delivering his people from a ruthless tyrant. And God's love towards his people has a drastic outpouring of judgment on his enemies and something that cannot be duplicated with its power. When faced with Pharaoh, a man of pure evil, and faced up against false gods, God is not to be trifled with, our text will display. And though his astounding actions against his enemies can be captured with words, they must be remembered with reverence and awe. And so you'll first come to this morning's text, seeing within your outline that God's overwhelming, or you'll see God's overwhelming reminders of judgment his overwhelming reminders of judgment. The plagues are increasing in devastation. From Exodus 9 through 10, we'll see this morning three more plagues, three, this, this third of the last cycles before a final tenth. And one thing that hasn't been talked about yet in length is the reason for the number of plagues. Why ten? Why not seven or five? Or even why not one full swoop and swing? 
bringing destruction on the enemies, like a flood that we would have seen earlier in the scriptures or a fire that we hear about at the end. Theologian Tom Schreiner to that point says the infliction of, the pla- of plague after plague impressed on the Israelites and the Egyptians that Yahweh was Lord and that the liberation of Israel was not a freakish accident. It was the outworking of God's plan. He later on goes to talk about how the ten plagues are a theater of God's glory to the world. And remember that all of this started briefly in Exodus 5 with Pharaoh mockingly asking the question, who is the Lord? And by the end of these plagues, he will know the answer to that question. So there are reasons for many plagues. The first one might be, there might be more than three, but the first one might be to show his power over judgment of these fake gods. To show his power and judgment over fake gods. The second one, to prove to Israel that their salvation is not their own doing. They couldn't escape Egypt on their own, but they needed something supernatural to take place. And then third, marvelously, he bestows his power over every square inch of the earth. Nothing that he created is outside of his control. And so in chapter 9, we have another reason for the longevity or another reason for more plagues. We'll see this in chapter 9, starting in verse 13. And so if you'll look down at your text, chapter 9, verses 13 through 21, I'll read another case of why there are so many plagues. Then the Lord said to Moses, rise up early in the morning, present yourself before Pharaoh and say to him, thus says the Lord and God of the Hebrews, let my people go that they may serve me. For this time I will send all my plagues on you, yourself, and on your servants and your people, so that you may know that there is none like me in all the earth. For by now I could have put my hand, could have put out my hand and struck you and your people with pestilence, and you would have been cut off from the earth. But for this purpose I have raised you up to show you my power, so that my name may be proclaimed to all the earth. You are still exalting yourself against my people and will not let them go. Behold, about this time tomorrow, I will cause a very heavy hail to fall, such as never has been in Egypt from the day it was founded until now. Now therefore send, get your livestock and all that you have in the field into a safe shelter, for every man and beast that is in the field and is not brought into a home will die when the hail falls on them. Then whoever feared the word of the Lord among the servants of Pharaoh hurried his slaves and his livestock into the houses. But whoever did not pay attention to the word of the Lord left his slaves and his livestock in the field. So God was telling Pharaoh a reason for this plague. And there was more idolatry for him to belittle in his midst. And the language here demonstrates a couple of things about what his reasoning was. The first thing it demonstrates is that the Lord is in complete control of Pharaoh's life. Not just every square inch of creation, but the actual thoughts and actions of who Pharaoh is. Second, Pharaoh is being spared so that he can see Yahweh's power and glory. And then third, the plagues show a battered tyrant who visually is almost being held up by his neck and forced to see judgment that he is unable to contrive or contain. As as almost truly, fully, mocking him, showing him everything out there that is about to be belittled is for you to realize. 
We're seeing the end of Pharaoh's might. What once was a mighty man who was feared by everyone, even caused people to shake as they would come in his midst, is now being lifted up as fire and hail from the sky is being plundered before him. So number two, we see our seventh plague in the series of 10. So let me read to you from verses 22. Then the Lord said to Moses, stretch out your hand toward heaven so that there may be hail in all the land of Egypt on man and beast and every plant of the field and in the land of Egypt. Then Moses stretched out a staff toward heaven and the Lord sent thunder and hail and fire ran down to the earth and the Lord rained hail upon the land of Egypt. There was hail and fire flashing continually in the midst of the hail. Very heavy hail, such as had never been in all the land of Egypt since it became a nation. And the hail struck down everything that was in the field in the land of Egypt, both man and beast. And the hail struck down every plant of the field and broke every tree of the field. Only in the land of Goshen, where the people of Israel were, was there no hail. In verse 27, then Pharaoh sent and called Moses and Aaron and said to them, This time I have sinned. The Lord is in the right, and I and my people are in the wrong. Plead with the Lord, for there has been enough of God's thunder and hail. I will let you go, and you shall stay no longer. What we see in this seventh plague about hail, where hail is being thrown down from the heavens, and it rains down on Egypt with complete devastation in this highly detailed narrative. And, and what's recorded is what's known as the worst hailstone, hailstorm, where it's not just hail, but it's really, really big hail. And it came with rain and thunder and lightning. Rolling flashes of judgment were everywhere. And in his exclusive power and wrath, God himself was rolling down this fury. So all of those who disobeyed him, it did not take his word for what it was. Now, some things did survive, all of those that actually took God's word for what it was, but everything else was devastated. Crops were beaten to the ground, trees were dismembered, and life was now lost. Earlier plagues caused inconvenience in people's lives, a bunch of bouncing frogs everywhere in your kitchen. But here, actually people are being smashed to death from rocks in the sky. Now, there are a couple of things I hope that you will take away from this and see. And, and the outline from these three plagues that I'll have is uh, there are a couple of things that I think we can see within this text and then one major thing that I, that I hope that you will know from this. And so the first thing that we can see from this hail plague is that Pharaoh's council now has their doubts on Pharaoh. You can see in verse 19 that the safe shelter was advised unless people want to die along with their livestock. Pharaoh had every reason to follow the advice because he'd seen God's work at play. And people around him were starting to doubt this, we see. We'll see this more extensively later in chapter 10, but they're starting to doubt him because we see in the text, in verse 19 and verse 20, that people were starting to hide their animals and to take refuge in their homes. But refusing this word puts his own counsel up against him in an uncomfortable position because his own counsel heard what Moses said and they too had this choice. Not everyone was as stubborn as Pharaoh was. Not everyone's heart was as hardened as Pharaoh's was. Some slaves and livestock were hidden away so that the Lord's thunder and glory would not be poured out on them. They had an opportunity to realize the worthlessness of their idols when facing the power of God's prophetic word. 
There is a refuge when we obey the word of the Lord and Pharaoh did not believe this and did not act on it. And slowly but surely, people around him were, were having eyes that were recognizing that things were not okay. And chronologically, some people think that these plagues would have taken place over like nine or ten months of time. So for months and months and months, they've seen the powers that they previously believed in now being belittled. So Pharaoh's council was starting to have doubts. And don't you know that was causing chaos in the castle? But then secondly, we see that God's word isn't a joke. God's word is not a joke. Judgment on the hard-hearted has been turned up as the might of the Egyptian goddesses and gods have been brought down. Not everyone hid from the hail. Verse 21 says, Whoever did not pay attention to the word of the Lord left his slaves and his livestock in the field. Such a mistake did these people make because the storm came on schedule and it brought with it death and blows of fury. This is a warning to you and to me to pay very careful attention to God's word. For when God says something, it's not a joke. When God tells you something, husband or wife or child or grandparent or just any random person in this room, it's not a joke for he is not to be trifled with. His words come with power. The Bible's truth is that the only way to be safe from God's wrath and from God's word is when we believe in his word and what it says about Jesus Christ the Son. His word says that everyone who believes in Jesus will be saved. This picture in this first plague where, where if you just hide your livestock and hide yourself, you will be saved. And, and the Lord's word is so clear too that if you hide yourself in the goodness and grace of Christ, you will be saved. And we see the outcome of this foretold in verse 26 where it says, Only in the land of Goshen, where the people of Israel were, was there no hail. God protects his people from the storms of judgment. And we have this fully realized where when we gaze upon the cross and we're reminded on the cross where, where the judgment that God's people should have brought on to themselves is actually poured out on Jesus himself. So what you and I deserve, when we are in Christ, we can look at the cross and say all of our sins were nailed there as he was nailed there. All of the wrath that was poured out on him, that should have been poured out on him, but we were covered from him like we were in Goshen where there was no hail for us. God's word is not a joke. It's actually a refuge. It's actually a place of peace. It will later show itself as paradise for all of God's people. And there's one thing that you must know I believe, from this plague, and that is remorse falls short of repentance. So remorse falls short of repentance. What I mean by that is we see towards the end of this passage that Pharaoh had had enough. He started to recognize some things, so he summoned Moses and Aaron, and, and he said to them, the Lord is right, and I and my people are in the wrong. Plead with the Lord, for there has been enough. So Moses left, and we know that what he did was not something that can be described as repenting of who he really was. Though it looks like he's giving himself over towards a sense of repentance, he was not actually repenting. Look at verse 34, but when Pharaoh saw that the rain and the hail and the thunder had ceased, he sinned yet again and hardened his heart and he and his servants. So the heart of Pharaoh was hardened and he did not let the people of Israel go just as the Lord had spoken through Moses. 
Now, some of the plagues show that Pharaoh comes really close, really up close, but still remaining so far away from actually repenting of his sins. There's a really helpful description uh, that you can Google or find a PDF written by Nicholas Ellen. Nicholas Ellen, it's called Nicholas Ellen Guilt and Repentance. You can just Google that and download the PDF. And he gives a really, he gives three really helpful categories of what biblical repentance looks like or biblical sorrow looks like. And the first one is this, having a right definition of who you are and who God is. Maybe put more shortly, having a, having a biblical definition of who God is. When a person is grieved over the reality that he has offended the almighty God, he is on a good step in the right direction. In other words, the person is sorrowful because of offending God, not because of the punishment that he will get, but because of the holiness that he can see. And the second, so first is definition, having a right definition of who God is. The second is having a correct direction of where we must go. Repentance, biblically, is the act of changing one's mind, resulting in the change of that person's action towards sin and towards righteousness. It's not merely feeling bad and seeing sin differently. Everyone who sins feels bad about it. Everyone who messes up, they their response is immediately like, I feel guilt. But that's not repentance fully. You must have the right direction in mind to turn from your sins and to go in the opposite direction of a sinful life. It's seeing sin from God's perspective, resulting in the change of a purpose and of a life away from that sin. So Nicholas Ellen helps us out with a definition of who God is, a direction towards godliness and away from sin, and finally a destination where the destination of repentance is a right relationship with God and all that comes with him. Now, Pharaoh only said that he was sorry for what was happening, not all the sins that, were brought, that brought him there. Pharaoh had a false definition of what repentance was. He had a bad definition of who God was and what his sin meant. Pharaoh also didn't confess his sins to God. He wanted Pharaoh to be, or he wanted Moses to be his mediator. He wanted someone else to take this up with who God was. So he had a false direction of where to go. He wasn't trying to leave his sin behind, but he just wanted the circumstances to change. And then lastly, to use these three definition, direction, and destination, he didn't turn from his sins. He just wanted everything to stop. Pharaoh had remorse and not repentance. And so this plague might look at us like a mirror would look at us. And does your definition match what Pharaoh's is? Where you see what is obviously taking place, terror, and you might even know that it's coming after you, but is your response one of repentance or just one of, well, I wish it wouldn't work out this way? Our text calls us to be people who are repenting, not people who are remorseful. Let's move on to plague number eight. We see in the text as it continues on now in chapter 10. I'll read starting from verse three and we'll go through verse 11. So Moses and Aaron went into Pharaoh and said to them, thus says the Lord, the God of the Hebrews, how long will you refuse to humble yourself before me? Let my people go that they may serve me. For if you refuse to let my people go, behold, tomorrow I will bring locusts into your country. And they shall cover the face of the land so that no one can see the land. 
And they shall eat what is left to you after the hail, and they shall eat every tree of yours that grows in the field, and they shall fill your houses and the houses of all your servants with all the Egyptians, as neither your fathers nor your grandfathers have seen from the day they came on earth to this day. And then he turned and went out from Pharaoh. Then Pharaoh's servants said to him, How long will you, how long shall this man be a snare to us? Let the men go that they may serve the Lord their God. Do you not understand that Egypt is ruined? So Moses and Aaron were brought back to Pharaoh, and he said to them, Go, serve the Lord your God, but which ones of you are to go? And Moses said, We will go with our young and our old. We'll go with our sons and our daughters, with our flocks and herds, for we must hold a feast to the Lord. But Pharaoh said to them, The Lord be with you if I ever let you and your little ones go. Look, you have some evil purpose in mind. No, go the men among you and serve the Lord, for that is what you are asking. And they were driven out from Pharaoh's presence. And then later on, the remaining verses of this plague show the invasion, and it's graphically described where Pharaoh seems later to repent after recognizing what is in front of him, total destruction, but really only wanting, again, relief from his circumstances. And his heart was hardened once more. This plague is considerably longer than the others if you just gaze at it. And it continues in in Pharaoh's stubbornness of what is really happening around him. Pharaoh is now having to deal with his own people. He's having to continually deal with Aaron and Moses. And all of the people around him are saying, it's not worth it. Just let them go. Like, look around you of the turmoil that, that these people are placing in us. And they just want to go have a feast. Egypt is being crushed. And so Pharaoh starts to bargain with Moses. Okay, you want this, but what if, what if you just had these people go instead of the full extent of who you want to go? And Moses says, no deal, because God demands something of him that he's willing only to give to God. And then the locusts come in complete devastation. Now, seemingly easy to overlook is the first two verses of this section. So I want you to see this echoing exaltation from this text where he talks about telling your children and your grandchildren. So I'm calling it the echoing exaltation where God received this glory in the hearts and homes of his people is what he is after. God is wanting Moses and Aaron to establish his work in such a way that it will be spoken about for generation to generation. Look at Exodus chapter 10 verses 1. Then the Lord said to Moses, Go into Pharaoh, for I have hardened his heart and the heart of his servants, that they may show these signs of mine among them, and that you may tell in hearing of your son and of your grandson how I dealt harshly with the Egyptians and what signs I have done among them, that you may know that I am the Lord. So here we have another reason for God plaguing the Egyptians. And that reason was for the stories that the Israelites would be able to tell even up to this day. And what stories the Israelites would be able to tell everyone. That the Exodus was not just any old story, but the Exodus was their story. It was the story of God's conquest that, that shaped these people of God where he delivered them from total slavery into his presence and into his merciful goodness. And what this story does is don't lose things within the details. What this story does is explains a lot about who God is. The Lord God who is all powerful and glorious. 
where we now know the answers to who is he and where did he come from and where am I going and what is the meaning of life and is there a God after everything that we can recognize as being thrown away? If there is, how can we know him and what does he want me to do with this knowledge and aren't these the questions that we ask of ourselves and other people every day? Our story is the story of Christ, the Moses of our true salvation who brought us out of Egypt or who the Bible describes as bringing us out of the bondage of our sin and into his glorious grace. It's the true story based on the facts of history, his virgin birth, his substitutionary life, his death and resurrection for our sins so that we are no longer in darkness. And this is the story that we should be willing to tell our children and our grandchildren. Now, I'm willing to bet you or even dare you, I'm willing to encourage you to put it more softly, that maybe you'll have a conversation the next couple days or weeks where someone asks you, hey, tell me about yourself. One of the things I love to do with people is to kind of make them feel a little bit awkward right at the beginning of the coffee and say, hey, I want to know every single thing about you. Just start wherever you want. Just tell me everything there is to know about you. And what if your story was told according to the scripture story? That you were once in bondage or in darkness, but by the grace of God and by the power of God, he crushed evil and enemies and brought you into his presence. What if that was on the tip of your tongue? Would that be one way to follow the lesson that we have from this plague? That we actually have a story to tell. You know, the, the more I get up or the more I grow up, the more I'm around people who think very little of their actual story. You know, when you're in seventh grade, everyone thinks kind of they're awesome because all of sixth grade they were told, you're really special. And yeah, we are really special and people are cool and people are awesome. Like their whole YouTube channel is devoted to it. People are awesome. But in reality, what you might think is awesome about you is nothing in comparison to what God has done for you. And is that what we can tell people? I think so. Another thing that I want us to see from this text is that the Egyptian gods are losers. And I mean that in the most playground sense of the word, that they are losers. Once were thought of as these great, powerful, mystical, mythical creatures are being belittled again and again and again. The locust is perhaps nature's most impressive example of the collective destructive power of a species. I mean, it can eat paint off of buildings, for crying out loud. And they don't travel one at a time. They, they would say in this case, they would travel in a thousand locuses for every square foot. And they covered the whole area. And they were belittled. The Egyptians were belittled by the Lord actually controlling who the Egyptians thought they were controlling. Pharaoh himself called it this death was how he described the devastation in chapter 10, verse 17. It was another humiliation of, God, of Egypt's gods. The Egyptians worshipped the patron of the crops, the goddesses of life, the, the god of grain, the guardian of fields, the divine protector against pests. They depended on all these gods to preserve their food and their time and their aspirations and even the weather. And they got it so wrong because in an instant the Lord actually did intervene and just bit by bit smashed these tiny little Egyptian god dolls. Like the fury 
that they would have seen from God itself, but then the belittlement of their soul when they realize that, but that's what we've been trusting in, and it's just gone. Friend, remind yourself that Egyptian gods are losers. And when we turn this to where it's less of a mirror and more like a window, so it's actually looking at us and we're not looking through it at someone else, we, we should start to realize that we put a lot of trust in a lot of things that can be very easily smashed, both big things and small things, your family heritage, your bank account, your, your car, your friends, your reputation, everything that you are slowly putting your joy or hope and satisfaction in. Remember, we're talking about the weather here and it's being belittled before them. We're talking about creatures of the earth that are terrifying and the Lord is just wiping away their ungodly satisfaction in an instant. The Egyptian gods are losers and so are your idols. Be warned for the locusts will come again. And the one thing I want you to take away from this plague is that circumstances cannot change you. Your circumstances cannot change you. This was the the hope and aspiration of whenever Pharaoh would react to all of this judgment that would come upon him. He would either blame shift it on someone someone else or he would want to change his circumstances around him. Typically people are obsessed with their circumstances or my circumstances and either you're proud, sinful, sinfully proud about where you've been placed. You know, you've earned that career. You've earned those friends. You've worked hard for that reputation. You've got things under control you're, or your life feels incomplete where you, you wish you had different friends or you wish you constantly had a different career or you, you wish you had your life in control. Pharaoh would say that these outcomes are based on his circumstances, and so he would just want different circumstances. He wanted an economic boom, so he would double down on slavery. Or he would want things to go away, so he would tell Moses, hey, go to your God, tell him I'm not okay, and maybe he'll stop. But the Bible portrays your life like a tree that bears fruit. And it can either bear fruit that is good fruit to be eaten, and relished by everyone at the table, or it can bear rotten fruit. And the fruit is an outflow of the root, or in our case, the heart. Pharaoh wanted to retain things not according to what the root says. And so we need to also look at this and say, what are we not addressing in our own lives? Pharaoh's nothing more than someone who has a hard heart. And Jesus says the opposite of Pharaoh and what he's wanting out of his circumstances. Mark 7, verses 20, says that what comes out of a person is what defiles him. And then Jesus would go on to list a lot of thoughts and actions that are realistic in everyday life. And then he says in verse 23, and all these evil things come from within, and they defile a person. Friend, your circumstances cannot change you, but it's your heart that must be changed. You, you may have been born in a certain place at a certain time. You know, if you want to have a kid who's great at hockey, you're supposed to have a kid who's born in like December 31st, according to that one book where they just grow up and become hockey players. You know, my parents wanted to have a spring baby with me so that I would play summer sports. You know, but, but our circumstances don't dictate our affections, but rather our heart actually dictates that. It's not determined by what's around you, but your life is determined by actually what is in you. And the Bible is clear that all of us actually have a dark heart or a hard heart or a dead heart outside of God actually converting us 
Or the Bible uses the language regenerating that heart or replacing it with his heart and his aspirations and his love. And so when we look at this, we must remember that circumstances cannot change us, but only the Lord's work in our heart can. So finally, the, the last plague for us this morning, the ninth plague. Let me read to you from Exodus 10, starting in verse 21 through verse 29. Then the Lord said to Moses, stretch out your hand toward heaven, that there may be darkness over the land of Egypt, a darkness to be felt. So Moses stretched out his hand toward heaven, and there was pitch darkness in all the land of Egypt three days. They did not see one another, nor did anyone rise from his place for three days. But all the people of Israel had light where they lived. Then Pharaoh called Moses and said, Go serve the Lord. Your little ones also may go with you. Only let your flocks and your herds remain behind. But Moses said, You must also let us have sacrifices and burnt offerings that we may sacrifice to the Lord our God. Our livestock must also go with us. Not a hoof shall be left behind. For we must take to them to serve the Lord our God. And we do not know with what we must serve the Lord until we arrive there. In verse 27, but the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart, and he would not let them go. Then Pharaoh said to him, get away from me. Take care never to see my face again, for on the day you see my face, you shall die. And Moses said to him, as you say, I will not see your face again. Whereas the other narratives in our passage conclude with Moses having already left Pharaoh, the, the command that Moses should leave in verse 28 reveals that he was truly growing in anxiety towards the person who was in his presence. Pharaoh was beginning to truly hate Moses to such an extent that he said, and I don't think this is a prophetic saying because we see this show up again, but more like a Western showdown where he says, if I ever see you again, I'm going to kill you. And Moses says, good enough for me, see you later. So I think there are a couple things to see within this. First of all, there's no warning in this plague. Like the third, of six, like the third and sixth plagues, the ninth is unannounced and is surprising in its terror. Night, darkness, nothing is visible. The sun god, Amon Ray, is being choked out completely. You think of what it must take to turn the lights off of everywhere? And now we're talking about power. Saving the most significant deity for last, God had, now think of this, darkened all of the land. Not an eclipse, because it was three days. Not everything, because the Israelites still had light. But without announcement, darkness preyed on them. And when your biggest God is the God of sun, this is dreadful. The rug has been completely removed from their feet. And Moses is God who brought light out of darkness. Here delivers light fading into black. Creation is at the Lord's command. And here we see another case, though very much highlighted here, where Pharaoh is truly recognizing, finally, who the Lord actually is. Previously, I think whenever Pharaoh spoke to Yahweh, or at least nine times out of ten, it was done in a mockingly qualifying way where he would say, your God, go, get, go talk to their Lord or bring them back from their God. And that seemed to be the standard way that he would talk and his servants would speak of the Lord. But now he knows their God and he knows he has to let them go for he is now saying in our passage, 
the Lord, as Moses and others had been saying before him. So we see that he is finally recognizing one of the things that the Lord was trying to do to him is to show him his true deity and then finally for Pharaoh to recognize his true deity. But also we have this tremendous connection with darkness. This is another thing I want you to see, a connection with darkness. In the Bible, spiritually speaking, darkness signifies error or ignorance. It signifies sin or rebellion, death. Everything that is opposed to God is described as dark. The Bible says that the way of the wicked is like deep darkness in Proverbs 4. This is the result of sin, for for Jesus says that people love the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil in John 3. And to disobey God, and 1 John says, is to walk in darkness. But the Israelites, our passage show, that our narrative says that they were not in darkness, but they were in the light. They They were provided light from the Lord where everything else around them was in darkness. Now light has a special spiritual significance too within our scriptures. It represents truth and purity. The Bible says that God is light and in him is no darkness at all. God's word is described in 2 Peter as a lamp shining in a dark place. Out of darkness, a sinner is brought into the Lord's marvelous light in 1 Peter. And at one time, Ephesians says, you were in darkness, but now you are not. The only way to escape the coming darkness for these people, though they had no warning, was to take refuge in who God was previously. And the only way for us to escape the coming darkness is to trust in Jesus Christ, the light of the world. When Jesus was born, it was true of what was being prophesied about previously in Isaiah 9, but then accounted for us to read Matthew 4 that the people dwelling in darkness have seen a great light. And for those dwelling in the region in the shadow of death, on them a light has dawned. In order to bring us into his light, Jesus himself had to enter into this darkness so that we would never experience it as his believers. The Bible speaks of Jesus' death as bringing darkness over the whole land. And this darkness showed what Jesus had taken upon himself, the guilt. The guilt that Pharaoh had, the guilt that these Egyptians had, the guilt that, that you previously had, the guilt that some of you still had. Jesus took that guilt on himself and darkness went across the land. And then he went into the dark grave for three days And remained there. And on the third day he was raised again by the spirit in in body and soul into a dazzling light. Displaying God's glory to the ends of the earth. To the point where it's still being displayed today. Where the radiance of heaven still lights up our life. Now everyone who comes to Christ comes into the light of his salvation. 2 Corinthians 4 says, For God who said, Let light shine out of darkness has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. So do not go past this plague without observing the wonderful connections with what darkness means over sin and what darkness was given to Christ because of your sin and how you are now in the light in the Lord's refuge forever and ever, never to be covered up in darkness again. There's one last thing that I want you to know. And this thing is giving God some of what he wants falls short of his demands. Giving God some of what he wants falls short of his commands. 
After the fourth plague, Pharaoh was willing to let the Israelites worship God as long as they remained his slaves, saying that they could work, worship and work for two masters. In chapter 8, he said that they could go, but they needed to stay pretty near. So they couldn't do all that he was asking them to do. They just had to stay, they just had to stay near him. Or to put another way, they could freely remain in bondage. Then he told them that the men could go, but that the women and children had to stay. Or in our case today, they could go, but their livestock had to stay behind. Pharaoh wanted to deal with God on Pharaoh's terms. He wanted to stay in control of as much as he can. It's like someone who's being tossed all around in a storm, you know, really trying to grab onto a rope, even though he's in the midst of a hurricane. It just won't help. God commanded Moses to bring everyone and everything for this feast that he had commanded. This is what God always demands. All of you. Not 50% of you. Not just you at 12 hours during the day. Not just you during a Bible study once a week. Not, not just you for like the last 40 years of your life, but not the first 40 years of life. But God always demands all of his people's worth. Pharaoh would not get to keep such one hoof behind because Pharaoh was going to drive everything out. Moses refuses to hold anything back, even without knowing in advance what God will demand of them. It's incredible to think of, of how much maybe you and I are constant planners or constant controllers. You know, so I'm going to fly to Indianapolis this afternoon, and I started packing on Monday because I had a chart, and it was counting how many pants I needed and shirts I needed. So, so by Monday afternoon, like, I was actually ready. Like, I needed that control because, like, the rest of the week would have just spun out of control. Or we try to hold on to things here and there. We try to tell God, like, I'll, I'll give you this if you give me this. Or, or he's demanding everything from your life, but you want to give him almost everything. And from the world's perspective, that, man, that seems a lot. That guy or that gal's given a lot of themselves. But when the Lord is demanding everything, even when we don't know what's going to happen, we see Moses rightly worshiping the Lord. Remember that they don't know what the feast is going to look like. You don't know how long it's going to last, when it's going to last their entire lives. But they're still willing to give all of themselves. And even when a powerful, bartering Pharaoh is saying, you can all go, finally, you can all go, just leave your cattle behind. They say, that's not good enough for the Lord, so it's not good enough for me. In Pharaoh's case, this was God's sovereign purpose. Instead of showing Pharaoh mercy, God hardened his heart. And this is one of the, the mysteries that the scripture shows of God's divine will where he has absolute control or total sovereignty over everything and we have absolute responsibility to follow him according to his demands. What's often seen as something that, that shows itself in tension towards one another, it's actually like interlocking links that reveal his plan where he has come to rescue his people. Even though we might have hard hearts, he has awakened some hearts to his glory and his grace. And these verses serve as a reminder that the plagues of Exodus were a preview of the judgment to come. So for us, we have to ask ourselves, what are we withholding from God when he demands it from us? Or, or what are we having fear of what the rest of our life or day or week is going to look like when he's demanded all of our future? And you got to remember the context of these plagues. There was darkness over everything. And if you're someone who is in the light, 
you go, this is actually a pretty good deal. I can trust this guy. Look at everyone else. They're in darkness. Or when the locusts come and they don't devour you or the hail comes smashing down and those who obey the Lord and they're not the ones who are smashed, you can look around and go, okay, if his word actually says these things, then I can keep trusting in it. So these plagues are not only a foretaste of the judgment to come, but also serve as an encouragement to us. So lastly on her outline, I I want to bring your attention to some unending reminders of who God is. Some unending reminders of God. Three things. First, remember the pathway to repentance is having a biblical view of who God is. That in his grace and in his mercy, the Lord himself forgives sinners when they totally turn from their sins and cling to him as their savior. True repentance has the emphasis on the relationship with God instead of on the consequences of sin. What this says about God brings us great joy and allows us to keep singing and to keep praying that he and all of his holiness and goodness forgives us. Secondly, remember that God gives a new heart. No one else gives a good heart. We can't depend on our own circumstances and we desperately need new hearts for we're unable on our own to soften our own hearts, but we need him to do so. We can become like Jesus only when we allow God to rid us of our old hardened hearts and to give us new ones. So we can rejoice in that it's God who provides this new heart. Where this reality of him regenerating our heart actually leads us to our faith. So when we have faith in the Lord, we know it's not because of circumstances. We know it's not because of anything we've done. But it's because him and his goodness has actually remade us and is making us into the likeness of his own son. God's desire is for every human being to become like his son, Jesus. And he does that by giving new hearts to people. So remember the pathway of repentance is having a biblical view of God. Remember that God gives a new heart. And then also remember that the deliverer's demand is an outflow of his desire. The deliverer's demand is an outflow of his desire. Remember the glory of God from this passage. That he is the only being that truly deserves worship. He requests that we acknowledge his greatness, his power, and his glory. And when you read verses like Revelation 4, chapter 11, it says, You are worthy, O Lord, to receive glory and honor and power, for you created all things, and by your will they existed and were created. When we see God's demands of us, it actually isn't that big or those large commands that should frighten us, but because we look at who he is and all of his glory and all of his power and all of his grace. And he calls us to a life, a life's worth of worship. And what does that demand come from? So he's calling us of a life's worth of worship. And what does that demand come from? It comes from his love for his people where his deliverance of us was from his love. His protection of us was from his love. His exclusive provision for us is from his love. So to conclude, the God of our scriptures, the God of Moses, and actually the God of Pharaoh too, is someone who brings his judgment on the wicked because of his love for his people. And grace is seen in this by knowing, accepting, and enjoying the reality that his people didn't deserve this, they didn't earn this, They weren't 
ever able to be seen as lovely or awesome, but in his love and by his will and according to his own glory, he delivered his people for their good and his glory. And these plagues are but highlights of what he has been doing all along. The loving Lord has been rescuing his people by drawing them to himself out of slavery and bondage and putting their enemies to shame. So in part, be warned by these plagues, for they will come again in Revelation, we see. But also in, point, also in part, remember the refuge that we have in Christ, and do not fear, for the Lord will smash his enemies. He will conquer the gods that mean nothing to him, and he will keep you in his arms forever and ever. Let's pray. Father, we come to you grateful and thankful that in your will and in your providence and in your grace, you knew us, your people, from before the foundation of the earth, not according to our deeds or what we had the capability of doing. You brought us out of slavery and into your marvelous light. Lord, when we are tempted to trust in anything but you, we pray that you would remove those idols. And, and we know that sometimes it might feel painful. painful. It will feel so glorious and so good because of we get more of you. Lord, we thank you for the lessons that we learn from your word. We pray that you would transform our hearts and make us and shape us more into the likeness of your son. For his glory and in his name we pray. Amen. Let us stand and respond. Tremble.